This is the Education Gadfly Show. If I am riding these scooters, then they are A, not cool anymore, and B, have gone very mainstream. Yeah. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week, Dr. Giselle Huff, the Executive Director of the Jacqueline Hume Foundation. Giselle, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, Giselle is calling in from beautiful San Francisco. Uh, You're still in the the beautiful, uh, which building is it? You're right downtown in one of those uh, Hallmark buildings, right? there. Yes, I was in the Transamerica building for 18 years, but now I am working from home, Uh, which is about six blocks away from the pyramid. Well, still in the most beautiful city on earth. Also joining us here from the world headquarters of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, David Griffith. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. I guess if we're uh, national headquarters, it's also the world headquarters, right? Exactly. Why not? Go big. Go big or go home, David. (laughs) Right. Uh, yes, indeed. Yes, D- David, over from the WeWork space where that, that we are renting while we are renovating the world headquarters here at Fordham. Everybody's doing it, Mike. I know, and I keep telling David, on your way back there, it's like four blocks away, you got to take one of those electric scooters. Yep. I, have, I, have you tried these yet, Giselle? They're all over D.C. right now, but I'm, you know, the... No, that is not in my... <laughs> you know, I'm not usually... I, I'm, I'm such a late adopter on these things that I'm always like, okay, if I am riding these scooters, then they are A, not cool anymore, and B, have gone very mainstream. Yeah, it's definitely A. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, hey, we are a podcast about education reform, so let's do our Ed Reform Update. Giselle has been at the at the bleeding edge of many of the most promising reforms in education, including really in the early days of blended learning and personalization. Uh, and she has been, I think, in many ways prophetic about some of the things that have gone right and gone wrong in education reform. You've been listening to the show and heard us talk about some things recently, and it made you want to express some opinions and come on yourself, which we're excited to do. So what, what's on your mind when, when you think about this stuff, Giselle, in terms of, you know, the, the stuff that you're focused on, personalization? and all the rest so there are two uh, there are three things that keep me up at night um one the first one is that among the people i speak to about many different subjects and some of the conferences and meetings i go to about things like what do we do about poverty inequality criminal mm-hmm. justice people talk on and on about these major pathologies and no one ever talks about k-12 education and these are at education conferences. No, but so what? Yeah. You can't solve those problems. Those people will be speaking about the same problems 30 years from now and wringing their hands if we do not change the way we educate our children. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, okay. So, so all right. The right. second thing that that drives me nuts, which is also, which is much more about education per se, mm-hmm. is the fact that the foundations that are big players in that space and I'll name them, two of them, the biggest ones, uh, Zuckerberg and Gates, were created by visionaries who transformed the world, Mm -hmm. but are run like bureaucracies that do not act like VCs at all and continue to um, support things that are old hat. And this is one of the things that was uh, clear to me when I read the... um, uh, the, the evaluation that was just done of uh, investing in 
um, innovation, right. Right. The which is, you know, the $650 million plan by the government mm-hmm. under the Obama administration, uh, there was an evaluation that was done and that was included in your podcast mm-hmm. as a link. Um, and when I read the results of that, this just put, made it clearer to me. So among those grants were three $50 million grants. One was made to KIPP, one was made to Teach for America, and one was made for, to um, direct instruction or success for all. all. Three organizations that had been going on for 20 years and had evidence, apparently, that they were good. Turns out that only KIPP made, uh, made it in the evaluation and the other two did not show any results for the kids. People forget that this is about getting results for the kids. Mm-hmm. And there's very little, you know, evaluation that's being done of what it actually means to invest in these things. Does it move the needle for the kids? Right, right. And it doesn't. Right. It, in many instances, it does not. And, and so you're worried that, that both policy makers and philanthropists are, are what? That they continue to invest in things that have been tried for decades and get, at best, you know, incremental gains. It's that, not only the government and, you know, entities that have control over education, but also foundations that invest in yeah. the, uh, supposedly, you know, serving our children. So, so what what would it be then, from from your perspective, if we were going to do something transformative that was going to really move the needle? I mean, what should these people be investing in? Is it clear? Or, I mean, or do we still not know? Oh, it's clear. So they should be investing as VCs, right, as mm-hmm. venture capitalists in. All of the activities, whether it is uh, the tools that are being developed through technology or the paradigm shift that's being thought, uh, talked about by various organizations, such as INACL that is trying to change uh, Carnegie units to competency-based learning or the Learning Accelerator who is trying to put together the best implementation tools that teachers can follow or uh, the education re- imagine that it's trying to change the mindset so that the enterprise is about learning and not about teaching, that it is centered on students so that the learner takes charge of his own learning. Yeah. And this is a paradigm shift we're talking about. And there are a number of organizations who are involved in doing that. But they're startups, mm-hmm. right? They're not, they don't have a long track record. So, you know, and look, and, and you and I have debated this forever. I mean, I look, I think a lot of this has potential, especially for the older kids, for high school kids in particular. I, I certainly, it's hard. I think it'd be hard to find too many people who would defend the Carnegie unit. Um, I mean, certainly I love the idea of making... Uh, our system much more focused on competency and proficiency. That's tricky at a time that we're having a big testing backlash. Um, but no, I'm open to that. But here, you know, here's my big debate with you, though, uh, Giselle, is, is you know, haven't we been learning, and we heard Jim Shelton a few weeks ago talk about this, that a, a, lot, of the, a lot of this picture is still about human relationships. And yes, if you have somebody who's super motivated to learn something, they can go on YouTube and they can get great content. My son, I'm, I'm writing about this this week, 10-year-old son, loves history, loves geography. He's come across all kinds of great stuff on YouTube, has been learning way more there than he has in school. Uh, and that's great. But he doesn't really like science that much. And so he hasn't watched any science videos. And, you know, he's not like 
write, doing much writing this summer at home because that's hard. He doesn't want to, I mean, so at some point, you know, we're talking about kids, you know, who uh, are going to always be focused on the short term and don't necessarily want to work and are a little bit lazy. And so somebody's kind of got to make them buckle down and do some work and even learn some stuff that they may not think is all that interesting. I mean, so how do you square this with this kind of utopian vision of kids taking charge of their own learning? I mean, it just feels a little naive to me, uh, just to, you know, that uh, I don't know what, what kids you're thinking about, but, you know, the kids I know in the real world, I don't think that is a complete solution for them. So you're um, equating this with the use of technology and watching videos. This is so far removed from that that I, I can't even, you know, discuss it. I mean, this has got nothing to, this is only incidentally, so blended learning and videos and Khan Academy, those are just tools, right? And, and, and it's the environment in which these tools are used. The models that I'm describing have a tremendous amount of work for the teacher to do, yeah. but a different kind of work, mm -hmm. not a compliance kind of work where they're using a pacing guide because the state demands it and they teach fractions for three weeks. And if Johnny doesn't learn fractions in three weeks, he needs five, too bad for Johnny. Right, right. And if he doesn't learn fractions in fifth grade, then he can't learn algebra. That means he can't go to college. Mm -hmm. That's how insane the system is. Yeah. How does this even, I mean, this has absolutely nothing to do with your wonderful son watching, you know, videos about geography and no, no. This is an entirely different kind of discussion. Mm. We're talking about empowering teachers to empowering children over time, starting mm. at a very low level in kindergarten all the way through high school, enabling them to make decisions properly and mm. giving them the opportunity to make mistakes and learn from them mm. instead of being punished for them. Yeah, no, also, it's their own pace. Yeah, and I think, Giselle, that that is where there's just a ton of agreement and where we could make some real progress quickly is around the pacing question is how do we uh, create more flexibility uh, to allow kids to move at their own pace? I mean, look, you know, gifted education advocates have wanted this forever to let gifted kids skip a grade or move ahead or, you know, uh, now it touches all kinds of issues. It starts, you know, if, to, to do it well. And, and given the, the realities of our schools, it means doing more ability grouping. It, you know, maybe multi-age classrooms would help around that. The start to, you know, but look, I think that's where there's a ton of potential. I mean, I, I just, I like that language better than talk about pacing, letting kids move at their own pace. I just find that more attractive than, than some of the talk about empowering kids or, you know, the learner is in charge of their own education. When we're talking about kindergartners, I don't know. It just, it just sounds a little bit, uh, it's hard for me to take that seriously. I mean, I don't know. What do you think, David? You've been in the classroom. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I agree with your preference there. Um, I mean, I think, I, I guess my question would be, is, is the issue here really lack of funding or lack of, of venture capital funding in these initiatives? Or is it, it's, it feels to me like there are still some fairly big legal barriers to this sort of approach to learning, right? I mean, in, in, the, in the typical state, there are, there are rules about like how much time kids have to spend in class. And, um, you know, how, like there are standards that are built around a particular, I mean, we've even pushed the common core standards, right? And the idea is, right, like, you know, that there's a certain like grade level, right? right. So, I mean. But, but the grade level and the age don't have to correspond necessarily. Yeah, I, I agree. I guess I'm just, I, I, I don't know. It feels like the barriers are institutional. Uh, I mean, 
more than sort of where the funding is. I guess I'm just curious to hear your reaction to that. So in other words, is it really the investment in tools that we need or is it still the hard work on the policy front? You know, get rid of the Carnegie requirements, allow right. kids to be tested, uh, you know, b- above or below grade level if that reflects where they are actually at. You know, get schools more comfortable with multi-age classrooms or letting kids, you know, let, let's have in elementary school, kids grouped by their current achievement level, even if that means that some of them are 10 and some are nine and some are eight, you know, and are we comfortable with that? I mean, is what, what do you think, Giselle? Well, it's definitely, as David was saying, it's also, I mean, it's not only the tools and the models and the, the ability, the empowerment of the teacher to use whatever is necessary in order for the child to learn. Um, it's also policy. But it is the policy is not nearly as much of a barrier as people make it out to be. It's There's a lot of stuff that is done in schools that is because it's always been done that yeah. way. But yeah. when you ask them to point to a law or a regulation that says it has to be done that way, they can't because it doesn't no. exist. That's right. And that's why we see most of the innovation happening in the charter sector. That's not true at all. You don't think so? It's not true at all. Charter schools are, that's what I thought when I started pushing blended. Uh, I thought, well, my goodness, the charter schools are going to jump on this. It's totally not true. The people who jump on this are the ones who are desperate. The people like, you know, the kids of this world who have a formula that works for that group of kids, uh, according to the, you know, the normal testing regimens, uh, they don't want to change that, and they don't. But the, the, the districts are like the Lindsay Unified School District in, in down near um, uh, Fresno, California, they were desperate. Their kids were graduating from high school not able to read. Yeah. And, and a lot of districts, many more districts in terms of the number of kids, have adopted or are trying to adopt or are on the way of, to adopting uh, this, these different models, competency-based, um, where where you do not move on unless you've mastered something. I mean, it doesn't mean anything to get a 70 and a fifth grade math test because you passed, but you didn't learn how to do fractions. You could still pass. Nobody knows you don't know how to learn fractions. It just messes up your life because you can't go to college. Yeah. Because you can't do algebra. I mean, really think about that. That is like, literally the only word you can use for this is insane. Yeah. So we're living in a system where we have 55 million kids going to school every day. And they're they're in a system that is insane. Mm. And, you know, we have some percentage that do very well and they move us along. But that's not enough in the 21st century. Right. All right. I like it, Giselle. Let's, <laughs> let's get rid of the insanity. That is hard to argue against that. All right. Again, Giselle Huff, Executive Director of the Jacqueline Hume Foundation. Thanks for coming on the show. I hope you'll come back sometime soon. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. And now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Have you tried one of those electric scooters yet? I have not. You keep asking me that. I just see myself <laughs> splattering on They're the concrete really if I get on that thing. Fun and easy. I'm <laughs> and I'm in a you. dress sometimes. Well, and we women have heels. It just right. would be a really ugly image. Well, given that our metro system around here doesn't seem to be working anymore, Oof. I'm just saying we got to look for alternatives. Bad news. I thought metro I was fixed. Is that uh, not the case? <laughs> Yes, I don't know. It's it's going. What's what's our motto? Um, back to good. Back to good. Not, not great. Not exemplary, hey, but 
Good. There is something Back to be said to for setting reasonable <laughs> Expectations. goals. Okay. Ooh, that one is something. But you know what we want to be excellent, Amber, is reading and writing I in America's love schools. It. There's a segue. What a great That's segue. what you got for us this week, We're don't gonna you? We're going to cover a recent Fordham report. You know, I like to do this sometimes. Uh-huh. Like, you know, not that it's all about us, but sometimes it's about us. It is. Uh, reading and writing instruction is what it's called in today's uh, In America's Schools, written by our own David Griffith here, Boom. Boom. along oh, with Ann Duff. Ambushed me. (laughs) It's been about eight years since most states adopted new ELA standards, most of which we know are based in whole or in part on the Common Core. Um, So those are what Mm -hmm. most states are still doing. Okay. I thought we got rid of the Common Core. Well, you know. We wanted to know how classroom implementation was progressing and where where educators might need support in teaching these standards. Mm-hmm. Okay, So we worked with RAND to administer a nationally representative survey of over 1,200 ELA teachers. Mm-hmm. The topics we examined are at the heart of the three instructional shifts in the Common Core and mm-hmm. similar state standards. I have to, I have to keep saying that and similar state mm-hmm. standards. Um, the shift, first shift calls for, quote, regular practice with complex text and their academic language. The shift two is, quote, reading, writing, and speaking grounded in evidence from text and third shift is building knowledge through content rich curriculum really i didn't know that was in there so we (laughs) asked whether all this stuff is actually happening yeah okay six quick findings want to be really fast organized by good then mixed then not so good so good teachers are using a variety of tools to gauge text complexity right okay so they're using the stuff like lexile and flesh Mm -hmm. kincaid are they using key aspects of the text like the structure and the purpose so that's good news okay finding two teachers are emphasizing close reading Mm -hmm. Um, in fact, 75% of them say they're asking more questions whose answers require evidence from the text, mm-hmm. not just, you know, what do you think? Mm-hmm. And almost half say they're placing more emphasis on word choice. Okay. Mm-hmm. So really digging into, you know, the text in, in more detailed fashion. Finding number three is the mixed one. Teachers are assigning less fiction and more informational text. So we did this baseline survey a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So we're actually able to see between 2012 and 2017, the percentage of times that teachers reported devoting to fiction has decreased. Um, as they move towards some combination of literary, nonfiction, and informational text. So, in general, we wanted them to be doing more informational text, mm-hmm. right? However, they also report assigning fewer, quote, classic works of fiction, which yeah. makes this a little mixed. It doesn't make it a little mixed. It makes it very well, sad, Well, no, it Amber. makes it mixed because it could not, it doesn't have to be fictional. It could well, be literary, right. nonfiction, or all literary right, fiction. All right, all right. But all right. the point is, we right, want... Mike, Mike, just get, let her finish uh. the findings. <laughs> He always likes to interrupt me because he thinks I'm too long-winded, even though I'm moving quickly. We want more of the good stuff of both Finding four, teachers are still prioritizing creative expression and personal experience over evidence-based writing. All right, that's not so good. Mm -hmm. Okay, that one's pretty clear. Um, 58% say they're more likely to give students a writing prompt designed to spark their interest in creativity as opposed to a text-based prompt. All right, finding five, I'm almost done. More teachers are choosing text based on students' reading level mm-hmm. instead of their grade level. Wonk, wonk. That's not good for That's kids good. who are below grade level. That's right. Teachers were 19 percentage points more likely to report choosing text based on students' reading level in 2017 than they were in 2012 when Oof. we did the baseline. The percentage who said they were more likely to base their choices on students' reading level increased from 39 to 57% this mm-hmm. time around. Oof. And last, finding number six, most teachers say content knowledge is getting slighted. The majority say that not enough attention is being paid to building students' general knowledge. They also say the curriculum materials do a poor job of building general knowledge, and Mm -hmm. one-third report that general knowledge has gotten worse in recent years. Mm. Woo! Lots All right, of, so let's let's talk. Okay, so the the general knowledge one. Look, this is the core knowledge, the, the core knowledge kind of stuff, right? Yeah. It's very simple in the elementary school. 
if we want kids to learn how to read, especially reading comprehension, they need to be learning history and science and geography. They need to teach about the world. And yet, the typical American elementary school doesn't seem to get this. Yeah, I mean, just speaking personally, this to me was, I think, the clearest and the most disturbing finding from the survey. It showed up consistently across different questions. Uh, Teachers didn't feel like their curriculum built general knowledge. Um, They felt like it had been ignored in implementation. um, And they didn't feel that kids... Uh, you know, they felt that kids' general knowledge had gotten worse, even as they were saying they were assigning more informational yeah. texts, Which right? Which a head-scratcher. It, well, because yeah. it means that, they, you know, the, in the grades before they got the kids that they maybe weren't getting this stuff. Or, you know, we started, we, we, we surveyed, what, starting at third grade? Mm, fourth. I mean, fourth. Look, a lot of this is, should be happening in the early elementary grades. This is when mm-hmm. kids are interested in these topics. It's when, again, uh, we're building those comprehension mm-hmm. abilities. You're saying it might have been piecemeal, even though they're doing more informational text. It wasn't sequenced in well, a way. Well, no, I'm just saying maybe it's still not happening in those particular let, Let's grades. put it simply, okay? Mm-hmm. I don't think very many kindergarten, first, second, third grade teachers are teaching much, much history, geography, or science, mm-hmm. okay? That's not okay. what we do in our elementary schools. We still have this idea Thematic stuff. that we teach no that we first you teach them how to read and then you read to learn and so in k to three we just don't spend much time on that stuff mm-hmm. see and, yeah and that's what i worry about in that you look at some of the reading programs and except for core knowledge and a few of the other ones uh you know there's just not a lot of content in there mm-hmm. i i just my worry is that there is no plan right i mean when your typical fourth grade teacher doesn't necessarily have know what's happening in fifth grade or in third mm-hmm. grade or in second grade and Right. So, you know, if you're if you're trying to build knowledge comprehensively, right, right, there needs to be some roadmap. And every teacher, you know, frankly, it has to I think at some level it has to come from the principal or department heads. Hence why it's called a core knowledge sequence. Right. Because that's right. I mean, because they do know, you know, okay, the look, the common core standards are skills. So they do know what skills that were worked on in third grade Mm -hmm. and what skills are going to be worked on in fifth grade. But they, you know, but the common core say this should be complemented with the curriculum. Mm -hmm. You know, unfortunately, most states' history and science and geography standards are terrible. So, yeah, I mean, you just, it's like we need to take the core knowledge sequence or something like it and flesh that out as as a real part of the standard. Let me just make two quick points. So, when I was a ninth grade social studies teacher, right? Okay, my first question was, you know, when on day one was I asked someone else in the department, right? Okay, so what do they learn in eighth grade, right? Mm-hmm. And the response right. was, I kid you not verbatim. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Wow. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so maybe I wasn't at the best school, but yeah. that right. is literally the response. The second anecdote is my kids didn't know the continents, right? Wow. In ninth grade, right? right? right. So right. I started there. I mean, I didn't, I just, you know, Gosh. like we can't get anywhere with history if right. you don't know the continents. Right. I, I kind of would have gone for the oceans first. I mean, yeah. I tried to get the continents <laughs> and the oceans, right? But, you know, I mean, that to me, that just speaks to the total yeah. just information vacuum. Yes. Um, and, yes. and, 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 you know, if, if, unless it connects, it's easier to remember things if they connect to each no, other. No, no, it needs no. to build on itself. Look, you like you could have gotten from, a textbook, at least the eighth grade textbook, right? Like you hear this from other people from other countries. They're like, it just seems like American kids don't know anything. And it's because, yeah. all right, second point, literature. We do not Ooh. want teachers to stop teaching classic literature. Right. Okay. Right. I mean, the, the standards are very clear. English teachers in high school should mm-hmm. be teaching literature right, right? So it's supposed it, to be shared across yes, that the, other the idea classes. of teaching more nonfiction, and the reason is because there's been some studies that when kids get to college they they don't know how to read uh social science stuff or other mm-hmm. nonfiction informational text history is a great place to do that science class mm-hmm. right it doesn't right. have to all be done in english class yes. that message 
seems to have been missed. I think so. Yeah, my sense is that it's it's getting hit from several sides at once, right? You know, one thing that's happening is obviously like America is becoming more diverse, right? right. And so teachers are wrestling with the challenge of um, assigning things. Uh, that speak to their students, right, that are culturally relevant. But there's a trade-off there, wow. right, which is that, uh, you know, there's only so many hours in the day, only so many lessons. And so if you're assigning something that's newer, um, it's you're, that's one less classic, right, well, that's All right, so maybe some of these well, could be new classics, but they're not. Yeah, they're, I mean, I'm still David, I mean, when I, I used to teach high school English, I taught Their Eyes Were Watching God's or Neil Hurston, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that was sort of considered a classic. Um, and so I think there are a handful of, um, and even the one about uh, Quint, what's the one that's scholarly about here at Hiroshima? Oh, yes. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. that one. Right. That one. It's I mean, depressing. I think there are yeah. some newer ones that yeah. are becoming more classics that are more diverse. So maybe the teachers, when they did the survey, were thinking about the, you know, dead white men classics. To kill a mockingbird a, well, of mice and men, whatever. I, I just think, I mean, I think the challenge here, right, is that like uh, America is changing. So how are we going to negotiate that change sure. while maintaining a common body of knowledge, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's challenging. Uh, but I also agree it's possible that people were just overinterpreting or misinterpreting yeah. the, the expectation. So, yeah. yes, we should still be assigning classic works of fiction. A lot to dig in here. Uh, we tried to write this report with teachers in mind. We right? did. To, with the real focus on, on concrete, actionable steps to help improve Literacy practice. lifelines was literacy what David called them. lifelines. <laughs> That's I like right. That. And we have a literacy lifeline document um, that is just the lifelines that are That's intended right. to help teachers negotiate the challenge of implementing yeah, the core. Right. So. Yeah. Teacher listeners, check it out. Yeah, you can even find it on Pinterest. (laughs) We did, we did some pins. We did. All right, good. All right, that is all the time we've got for this week. Until next week, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.